This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. The Buck Sexton Show. Now, spreading freedom across the nation, this is The Buck Sexton Show. Team Buck, welcome back to the Freedom Hut. Thank you so much for joining. We have Jay Nordlinger with us now. He's senior editor of National Review, and he's the music critic of the New Criterion. He writes about politics, foreign affairs, culture, language, a whole bunch of stuff. His first collection was called Here, There, and Everywhere. Now he has a new collection of essays out, digging in further collected writings of Jay Nordlinger. Jay, great to have you. Thank you so much, Buck. Appreciate it. Uh, tell us a bit about the collection, Jay. Tell us about digging in. Well, it's a smorgasbord, or a cafeteria, if you like. It's a grab bag of pieces, about 75 of them, on various topics. I have profiles of people and travel pieces and essays, some language, some music. Uh, it's kind of an A to Z, or at least a, an A to S, or something like that. Who is the unassuming oil man who is also a modern-day Horatio Alger, for example, or a Horatio Alger well, story? That's, um, that's a fellow named Harold Hamm, who's an Oklahoma oilman. He's the head of Continental Resources, and he was the 13th and last child of cotton sharecroppers. He became something like the 30th richest man in the world. And I don't mean to dwell on money uh, but it is a measurement, and he has done astounding things. And it's kind of reassuring to know that that sort of thing can still happen in America. Indeed, and, and there's a 100-year-old Austrian who survived four concentration camps. That must have been quite a story. How did you uh, get into that one? Well, I had the sad duty of attending the funeral of a friend of mine in Salzburg, Austria, where I do some work every summer at the music festival. And a man who spoke was the head of the local Jewish community. And uh, someone told me, that guy is 100 years old. He looked about 75, and he survived four concentration camps. He likes to quip, I could write a Michelin guide to the camps. So I sat down with him to find out about his life and adventures. That's not quite the word, although he has had some adventures. And this fellow, three years ago, he was 100. I believe he's still going. He had vivid memories of World War One. So every, every now and then, as you know, you meet someone and think, huh, that's someone extraordinary under the sun. Absolutely. Uh, a pretty dramatic switch of gears here. Also, one of the essays deals with uh, a prima. Before I tell you this, by the way, my mother actually was a dancer in the Court of Ballet of American Ballet Theater when Barishnikov was the principal there. So... I guess I have ballet in my blood, or at least somebody who's a blood relative is uh, is still in love with the ballet, even at, even to this day. 
Um, but uh, you, you write about a prima ballerina. Tell me a bit about that. Well, your friend Barishnikov, if I may put it that way, <laughs> promoted a girl, a teenage girl named Julie Kent in a movie and uh, called Dancers, I believe. And she became a beloved dancer of Barishnikov's company, ABT. Uh, all of us are in love with her. And uh, she was retiring, age mid-40s, I think. And I thought, well, there's a hook. You know, you and I are always looking for a hook. Maybe I can go talk to her. And I did, and she was absolutely enchanting. And one of the things I like about this profession, uh, journalism, is it's a license to be nosy, and it's a license to meet people. And that, frankly, is what I did with Julie Kent, and I'm awfully glad I did. She was an extremely interesting interview. Speaking to Jay Nordlinger, he's senior editor of National Review, and he has a new book out, Digging In, Further Collected Writings of Jay Nordlinger. Uh, Jay, tell me a bit about the explosives camp. I, I have some experience with explosives, but of the C4 kinds, not of the uh, – <laughs> I'm, I'm assuming this was, this was meant for people in the, in, in the industry and commerce, not you know, overthrowing foreign governments or dealing with bad guys. But tell me about the explosives camp. Well, I guess once you have the explosives, you can do with them what you want. That's uh, a fair I, point. It, it, in America, there's a summer camp for everything, apparently. You got music. You got sports. Uh, I knew a girl who went to number theory camp. That was definitely not for me. And I heard about an explosives camp in Rolla, Missouri, at the former Missouri School of Mines. And they teach kids how to blow things up responsibly. And I said, I have to see this slice of America how can something like this exist in modern America where we're so concerned about everything? But sure enough, I hear kids learning how to make shells and set them off and all that stuff. And I thought I'd really seen something new or at least new to me. Did you, if I may, you know, I spent a, a fair amount of time in my earlier professional career around all sorts of firearms, you know, using and training and, and then carrying them. Uh, I, that never really made me uncomfortable at all. I, I liked, uh, I liked shooting. I, I liked being at the range, but I do have to say that explosives always made the sort of hair on the back of my neck stand up a little bit. You, you know, you learn about blasting caps and the explosive train and all the things that go on. Yeah. Did you handle some of these things yourself? I mean, I remember the first time I actually had C4 in my hands. I thought to myself, well, I could make the little animals like Bill Murray does in Caddyshack, and then I realized that, that would probably be an explosives for a pa. But did you did you get near them? Because the the concussive force of these things when you're really around them is is quite an awakening in many senses. Well, I, the middle aged guy, watched teenagers do it, and they were sitting at their picnic tables or something like that, making their shells. And I remarked to a counselor, you know, it almost looks like ordinary arts and crafts. And she responded, arts and crafts with an edge. I would say so. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I did not do any of that stuff as, as, a, as a youngin, only as a, uh, only as a, government, a government employee, <laughs> I could say. Tell me a bit about this, uh, this uni unicorn of a university, as you call it, in Guatemala. I heard something about this classical liberal university, this university devoted to classical liberal ideas, free enterprise, individual rights, and so on. This place in Guatemala City with uh, uh, a Milton Friedman Auditorium, an F.A. Hayek this, uh, uh, Ludwig von Mises that. I just had to see it. And I went to see it, and it's true. It's this astounding university called the Francisco Marroquin University, 
where these principles are taught. And you don't have to believe it when you enroll, but that is the emphasis or the slant of the university. And it's one of the most prestigious universities in Central America. They've done great things, not just for the individual students, but for the country in terms of privatization and so on. And I really had to see it to believe it, this Ludwig van Mises Auditorium and Adam Smith Plaza and all that, in this beautiful, I could almost call it a tropical grove. And it's true, it exists. I, I wish I had a, Spanish, a Spanish-speaking kid to send there. You know, it's funny, I have an artist uh, friend, a childhood friend, we grew up together here in New York City, and he, he does art with a, a, a sort of a political message, and one of them is he's created a, a Hayek... That is, it's sort of a form of pointillism, I guess. It's entirely out of miniature letters, a, a like a three by five portrait of high. It's huge, so people get creative with these sorts of things. There, there are conservative, uh, conservative artists and conservative academics out there, and it sounds like this place in Guatemala is uh, is is definitely worth seeing. Also, fantastic coffee, from what I understand, as I sit here uh, getting my, my morning brew going. Tell me a bit about, uh, I mean, I, I can't see that this is part of your anthology of essays. Speaking of Jay Nordlinger here, he's got a new book out. It's a collection of his essays, Digging In. Uh, and I see that you're going to talk about Obama and golf. I, I want to hear about this. <laughs> well, a lot of people on my side of the aisle, our side of the aisle, the conservative side, have knocked Obama for playing so much golf. And uh, I thought he was kind of safe out there. I appreciated him on the golf course sort of more than at work. And also I wanted to defend golf because some of Obama's left-wing critics said, well, it's an elitist sport, not really something a good liberal Democratic president should do. And I, in an essay, told about my own experience growing up with golf and working at golf courses, a couple of munis, as we call them, municipal courses. And where I come from, Golf is a very, very democratic game with a small d. It's for one and all. Uh, it's for the working stiff and the CEO and the man of leisure alike. So I wanted to write about o- Obama and his golf habit and uh, defend him a bit, which wasn't really my usual mode during the eight years of Obama. And you defended him how? Well, I think it's a wonderful pastime. Uh, and it's great for... Uh, making friendships. Uh, You're not really hurting anybody. It's a game of honor and ethics. And I think presidents should get out uh, a bit and do stuff like Eisenhower and his golf and I think Hoover and his fly fishing. I thought it was a fairly innocent and, in fact, um, admirable pastime. So I wanted to to stick up for Obama. I'm definitely going to have to at least excerpt this interview we're doing, Jay, and send it to my dad because he would completely agree with you on the wonders of golf and how anybody who would ever criticize anyone for too much time on the golf course just hasn't experienced it for themselves. They're, they're, they, they need to go check it out a, a bit more. Um, uh, one interesting thing you, you talk about in the essays is uh, when do you use someone's first name? Can you give us some of the? I don't. I know. I'm, I'm trying to. I'm, you're giving away some of the story here. I get that, but give us no, a little. No, not at all. Well, when when I do love, you use a first? I love giving away the store. All right, give away. Well, buy the anthology, everybody. But he's giving you the store right now on radio. Um, tell me a bit about when you use a first name, in your opinion. Well, this started when Vice President Joe Biden was going around in public referring to the president as Barack, and I thought that was a little bit strange because vice presidents usually don't do that, not in public. So this was the germ or the spark of an essay on the use of first names and how tricky it can be. 
Uh, here in America, we're a pretty first-name country. We're a casual country. It can be a little tricky uh, abroad. And I tell a story. I think I've mentioned Salzburg. I stayed at the same hotel there for many years in August, and I got to know the night clerk pretty well, a fellow named Klaus. And I so wanted him to call me Jay, and I wanted to call him Klaus. He was about my age. And so he agreed to do it, but I could see it caused him such discomfort. I said, never mind. And I realized it was wrong of me to kind of insist that he call me Jay because it made him so uncomfortable. Uh, another time, for example, an older woman, mother of a friend of mine, I called her Mrs. So-and-so a couple of times, and she said with great annoyance to me once, why don't you call me, and then she said her first name. And I thought but didn't say, well, lady, because you didn't ask me. So... It's a kind of a funny essay. I remember being uh, made fun of by some of the the counselors at various sports camps I went to because I called everybody sir. So I went to Jesuit school and I went to Catholic school and we, we that was just what we did. And they're like, you don't call me sir, you call me first name. And I just, as like a 15, 14-year-old, I, I had a hard time with uh, people, you know, anybody over the age of 21, I thought was a sir. So I, I understand, you know, this, <laughs> this, this could be uh, this can be difficulty. I got a couple of quick ones for you before we close out here, Jay. I know you end digging in uh, with a suite of musical pieces or music pieces. Uh, let's yeah. ask you, okay, uh, you have only one CD of one artist or composer you can bring with you to Nordlinger's Deserted Island of Freedom. What is it? <laughs> Gun to my head, gun to my head, handles Messiah. It wow. never fails to uplift and console. Okay, fair, fair point. You have, uh, you, you are forced to tell an alien species that there's only one TV show that they can watch that you think is the, the sort of the height of that medium. Basically, the greatest TV show for you ever oh. made is what? Oh, Buck, I, I quote my. My old friend and boss, Bill Buckley, that question is like Peking duck, requires 24 hours notice. Okay, fair uh, enough. We, we can I, give I you guess, I guess But I Jay, can, next I time you're on, don't think I'm going to forget. The buck is like an elephant. I'm going to remember this one. So we're going to have to get, we're going to corner you on the best TV show question. Uh, I'm working on it, babe. Working first on bo- it. First book you can remember reading that made you think, wow, I love reading. So now we're going back to, you know, little Jay. Yes. I loved presidential biographies simplified, you know, for children, presidential biographies. It made me love America and history and politics. All right. Jay Nordlinger, digging in his anthology, available now. We can get this on Amazon, Jay? Soon. Very soon. And for now, at store.nationalreview.com. Thank you for asking. All right. Jay, uh, Senior Editor of National Review, great to have you, sir. Appreciate you joining today, and uh, we'll talk soon. Thanks a million, and give off a chance, Buck. Give it a chance. <laughs> All right, sir. Thank you very much. Uh, team, we'll be right back. You're listening to the Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. See, we just had Jay Nordlinger on from Nash Review. We were speaking a little bit about uh, you know, explo- a camp where you learn about explosives. Um, I 
went to a camp as an adult of sorts where you learned about explosives. Um, part of it uh, was IED familiarization, which is a, another way of saying IED avoidance, uh, trying to avoid IEDs out in the field. Um, also, just having a better understanding of the tactics, techniques, and procedures uh, that the enemy was using, unfortunately, with with great effect at the time um, against us, including with uh, EFPs, explosively formed penetrators, uh, which are on a, a, a horrific weapon, but um, devious and somewhat in- ingenious in their chemistry and in their creation for the uh, defeating of armored vehicles, uh, explosively formed penetrators. Those of you who served in Iraq, Afghanistan, particularly in Iraq with the EFPs, know what I'm talking about. Um, they were able to punch these cylindrical holes in the holes of uh, even heavily armored vehicles. Um, but I always remember being around e- explosives and, and in the train. And I had training that was sort of, a, again, at the, at the familiarization recognition level. I was by no means somebody who was uh, handling them on a regular basis. Or, or you know, I have a, a friend here in New York City who is a, an EOD tech. And, you know, his, his knowledge of explosives is, you know, on a scale of 1 to 10 is... I don't know, maybe a nine point five or a ten. I'd, I'd let him. I'd let him pick for himself. Uh, you know, mine is if the average person is a one or a two. You know, I'm like a four or a five on explosives. Maybe, maybe a four. Um, but they were uh, they are teeth rattling. I mean, when you get near these things, uh, the concussive force and, uh, and part of it also uh, for safety purposes. Uh, by the way, I'm thinking about this because uh, not just I mentioned it with with Jay before here and there's a camp where people are going to learn about explosives and deal with them Uh, but because there's this huge uh, explosion at a fireworks market and right outside of mexico city killed 31 people and dozens more have been badly burned i mean if you see uh, if you see the um, footage of this uh, it is well is spectacular in the sense that it is a spectacle. It's obviously horrific in that people died, uh, but there's footage of what happened here, and you can imagine a giant fireworks market exploding. It's it's like nothing else uh, I've ever seen. I mean, this is why I think, in part, you've got a very high death toll, which is just terrible. I mean, can you imagine you've got people who are just going to pick up fireworks or you know enjoy fireworks for whatever reason, and they're in this market, and the whole the whole thing just combusts. I wonder what they're going to find out about how this happened. Uh, it was a chain reaction explosion. It ripped through all these stalls at the San Pablito fireworks market. Um, and it was very well stocked because for the holidays down in Mexico, they like to, for the Christmas season, apparently, I didn't even know this, they like to uh, light off fireworks. You know, I remember being uh, in, on the other side of these things, uh, setting up, large explosive charges under vehicles and, and detonating them. Not for this is for training, not, you know, not in a, uh, not in a combat sense. And it's just, I, I don't know. Explosives always, always really kept me on edge. Even handling uh, detonators. I always felt like when you are, are handling a detonator and, and this is, you know, sometimes we could do f- familiarization within the military. The military was great that way. If you're an Intel officer, um, you could go to the different places where U.S. U.S. Mill trains and practices, and you know, get some time, get some time in on on whatever the discipline is, on whatever the skill set is that you're trying to acquire. Uh, but I remember the just even the blasting caps uh, thing, and they one of the things they showed you was 
what happens to people who don't have respect for blasting caps in terms of treating them like an explosive device because they're so small. And they, I remember seeing photos. And I'll be honest with you, they still haunt me to this day. So explosives I do not think are fun, I'll be honest with you. But some of you, I guess, if you're going to play with them for the holiday season using fireworks, be careful. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Well, team, MTV caused quite a stir here. I want to play this video for you in full. It's uh, it's a bunch of, well, you'll hear it. It's 2017 New Year's resolutions for white guys. Play the clip, John. Go. Hey, fellow white guys. It's about to be a new year. And there's a few things we think you could do a little bit better in 2017. First off. Try to recognize that America was never great for anyone who wasn't a white guy. Can we all just agree that Black Lives Matter isn't the opposite of All Lives Matter? Black lives just matter. There's no need to overcomplicate it. Also, Blue Lives Matter isn't a thing. Cops weren't born with blue skin, right? I mean, yeah, they weren't born blue. Stop bragging about being woke. Stop saying woke. Learn what mansplaining is and then stop doing it. Oh, and if you're a judge, don't prioritize the well-being of an Ivy League athlete over the woman he assaulted. We all love Beyonce. And yeah, she's black, so of course she cares about black issues. (laughs) I'm talking to you, Fox News. Feel free to take Kanye West, though. You guys can have him. You know what you did, Kanye. Nobody who has black friends says that they have black friends. And just because you have black friends doesn't mean you're not racist. You could be racist with black friends. Look, guys, we know nobody's perfect. But honestly, you could do a little better in 2017. Some of you guys do a great job. Some of you don't. Please, because 2016 is bad. 2017 can't be worse than this, all right? Because this is bad. I agree with them on that point. This is bad. It's a terrible video of just, just childish stupidity. Uh, the notion that it's okay for some people to make these sweeping and look, there's some people in the video who are people of color. There are others who are white, and you know, but that see, what's really fascinating is that the left has learned nothing about what's just happened over the past year. When people talk about the political correctness, uh, the cult of political correctness, and the sort of progressive orthodoxy that has taken over and all of the, uh, the all the sort of PC mandates that seem to just sort of spring up out of nowhere all the time, that often refers to this kind of stuff about, oh, well, we can say whatever we want about, you know, white people or denigrating white men is okay or speaking to white, specifically white men, because at least women are even though I believe they're a majority of the population on earth, they're considered, you know, minority sort of status or protected status by the left. And that speaking down to or denigrating or criticizing white men, because in the left's lexicon, there's a power imbalance that inherently exists because of white privilege. Uh, it's not okay. And I think this is where, where we finally 
reach this point and and see that the left really believes that they can mock and ridicule white men and it's okay it's it's in fact really an obligation because it, it has a sort of balancing effect of offsetting white privilege this is really a, this is a, i'm going to use a word that the left has largely co-opted this is offensive this stuff offends and annoys people uh, when you undermine the hard work that people of any skin color, including white people, do by saying that they've gotten where they are because of their skin color, that annoys people. What's fascinating to me is that because of affirmative action, we do, in fact, know that there is a legal regime of pro-minority discrimination in this country for schools, for jobs. But you could never bring that up. And, and to judge somebody by the color of their skin who goes to a certain school, let's say someone goes to Harvard and they're um, Samoan, just so we you know, take it out of the really the real sort of heat of the racial discussion for a second here. Uh, love Samoans. It's cool. You know, I'm just trying to pick a, a random group. Um, and but I do believe Pacific Islanders get a, a, a leg up in the admissions process, similar to what. Native Americans do, African Americans do, Latinos do. Interestingly enough, South Asians, Arabs, they don't. But they're a protected group, but not for the purposes of hiring, or for the purposes of college admissions. Because there's really just, uh, this is just a, a system that is in constant flux and is changing based on the whims of the progressive left. It's not rooted in any particular principle, right? Initially, it was about making sort of things right that had been the wrongs of slavery, making that right at some level. But then, well, why are Latinos included? Oh, well, it's underrepresentation. Okay, so there's underrepresentation of a group. That means that that group then gets, where, where do we stop that? Is it Does it now include uh, those who are uh, gay, lesbian, uh, bisexual, transgender? The answer, of course, for college admissions purposes is yes. And, and more and more, by the way, for school, I mean, for uh, hiring purposes, we see it's also yes. Uh, but this the the sort of pop culture idea that has really taken root and that has become very prominent that you that making fun of white people it's really the only group that it's safe to mock anymore is white males particularly white male well white male Christians is really what they're talking about but white males in general um, that's the only group that you can just you can completely pile on denigrate make fun of you can make judgments based upon their skin color and completely get away with it and it's fine you can essentially say whatever you want to people in that group i mean you you see this video here mtv's releases they've now pulled it down because of all the backlash and may, maybe it's a publicity stunt right maybe mtv which i didn't even really know was a thing that existed anymore i mean certainly nobody watches music videos my understanding of mtv is it's now like one long series of you know teen mom shows or something i don't know like really lowbrow reality shows that's my that's my sense of what's on mtv but I, I don't have cable and i don't really know but i do know that nobody's like watching the latest motley crew video anymore but motley crew was awesome back in the day i'm just saying so it's kind of amazing that those guys that for a while the coolest of the cool was to have as a guy was to have like giant frizzy hair and wear super tight leather like lime green leather pants and have a boa and be on stage like that was you were at the top of the 
you know, alpha male, I can date any woman I want pyramid in the in the 80s and into the 90s in this country. Although grunge and Cobain, Stone Temple Pilots, all that stuff kind of changed it. Pearl Jam, uh, Smashing Pumpkins, that all knocked out the sort of hairband era. But that hairband was even a thing is sort of astonishing. And I think it's only really it was only really possible because of MTV and that revolution. Anyway, MTV is now uh, struggling for relevance. They put out this video. They talk about Black Lives Matter. Uh, they have the most sort of superficial understanding of, of all of these discussions and debates. I mean, some of this stuff is just low-hanging fruit no matter who you are. I mean, even even in sort of like the two-digit crowd, two-digit IQ crowd to uh, talk about how anybody saying that they have black friends, mean it, that doesn't mean they're not racist. I mean, you know, we, we've heard this joke a million times. And it's, it's interesting because you're allowed to be asked, do you have any black friends? And that's automatically an accusation in and of itself, right? So they can be like, do you have any black friends? And then if you say yes, you are mocked for thinking that somehow that is uh, absolving you of the possibility that you are racist. When really, the only way to not be racist is to adopt the progressive orthodoxies of the left. That's what they want everyone to think, and that's what they want everybody to believe. But, I mean, looking back at this video and the things that they, they have on here, um, you know, Black Lives Matter, for example, I mentioned talking about Black Lives Matter. Uh, I suppose we are all just going to ignore or they believe we should ignore that Black Lives Matter led to uh, mass casualty attacks on police officers, uh, that Black Lives Matter protests, which I saw myself, which I walked alongside and, and looked and looked at with my own eyes, had posters and placards up of the kind of stuff that you would never want your movement to be known publicly for saying because they have to at least pretend to want police reform. You know, it has to be about ending police brutality. It has to be about um, stopping these sorts of things from uh, from occurring that all of us agree are bad, right? Nobody wants an innocent person, a white, black, any color, uh, to be harmed by police, and we all want police accountability. But why is it that black lives matter? Well, you go to these protests, as I've said to you before, and they talk about how young black men are being hunted across the country, young black men are being murdered and killed, and that's a very loaded, uh, pardon the terminology, very loaded accusation. Right? The idea that young black men are just being killed by police more or less for sport across the country is going to lead to very severe and very serious consequences, um, and we've seen that play out, and it's not going to happen it's not going to happen in every case or at all times, but it is going to be something of which we must be uh, cognizant because we've seen what, what happens here. Um, but anyway, th- that's more sort of specific to Black Lives Matter, which is only one of the many things they bring up here. But just the mentality behind this in our hypersensitive culture on race and where we're it's funny because there's some people who think we can never talk. We never talk enough about race, even though we talk about race all the time and. We're surrounded by discussions on race. The news cycle will be dominated for weeks on end when it comes to race. And you had a whole movement, Black Lives Matter, that was getting endless media coverage and very favorable media coverage, even when it didn't deserve it at all. That was about race. That a network that I'm sure I forget who owns MTV. I'm sure it's one of the sort of giant parent companies, you know, Viacom or one of these things that owns. John, do you know who owns MTV? I don't know who owns MTV. I'll find this out. Um, I mean, I know it's not a standalone, so 
Oh, yeah, Viacom. I was right. Psh, even when I think I'm wrong. Uh, Viacom owns MTV. I mean, there's so much PC in the corporate cultures of these organizations, and they're always so concerned with the creation of controversy or anything bad happening, anything going on here that, you know, is is uh, problematic from the perspective of public relations. And yet they would create this video and there's real, it wasn't like one person went off and did a sort of Facebook live somewhere. They'll create this video and they will allow um, people under the MTV banner to mock white people. And that just strikes me as utterly uh, indefensible. And I know that we're supposed to say, oh, I know how offended are you, you know, white male with your white male privilege. You know, I'm, I'm not offended in the sense that I really care, but it just sort of shows the stupidity and the uh, pathetic shallowness of the left that they seem to think that this is helpful. Like, like white people in this country, this is the underlying premise of this video, that white people in this country need a lecture right now. And no, no, some people need a lecture, people of all different racial and ethnic backgrounds, but not everybody from any ethnic or racial background needs a lecture on anything. Thank you very much. And making sweeping generalizations of the kind you see in this video, uh, the sorts of uh, you know very broad stroke uh, mocking tones that they use here is really, to me, just sort of evidence of, of how detached from reality the left has, has become on a lot of these issues. Um, they don't see that this is going to be a liability. There is the, poss- there is the possibility, and I should state, that I think it's at least a 50-50 shot. They did this knowing they'd have to pull it down. They did this because they're so desperate for attention. And also, it's a form of, even when they have to pull it down and say we overstepped, it's a form of virtue signaling. It's a way of telling everybody, all the sort of young uh, millennial idiots that see this stuff and think that it's really edgy and great, um, they see this and they think, well, you know, MTV, they've really got it. They've got their finger on the pulse. They understand stuff. So there's a desperate effort to be edgy, hip, relevant here. As I say to you, the, the real counterculture, I mean, the, the real insurgency within the culture is comes from the right, actually. It does not come from, you know, the, the people that speak truth to power overwhelmingly these days are conservatives. This, this notion that sitting around and talking about white privilege and the patriarchy and the, uh, the manarchy and all that stuff makes you brave is nonsense because that's always said only in an echo chamber of the sort of leftist safe space, which much of the media is already. Um, But by no means are they doing this in a forum where those ideas can be challenged. And in fact, when they are challenged, even outside the forums that they want to share these notions of mansplaining, manarchy, patriarchy, male hegemony, all that stuff, when they are challenged from the outside, they want to sort of find some means, some mechanism to shut down those challenges. They, They look to find a way... Uh, they look to find some means of having somebody else weigh in by saying that the the favorite way of doing this, as I've told you before, is to say that they feel unsafe now. Your your words or your positions, your ideas make me feel unsafe um, because obviously any any normal any normal room full of Americans that has someone standing up there who's giving a very uh, worthless and condescending lecture on like the manarchy. And somebody who's just a normal person who's like, what does this even mean? How is this relevant? How is this helpful? Why, why do we allow this intellectual laziness to persist? Um, 
that you know the first person loses that debate. That's why they don't want to have a debate. They just want a lecture. Uh, team, we're at 888-900-3393 on the phones. We're going to go to a break. We'll be right back. The Buck Sexton Show. Discover more at theblaze.com slash radio. The Blaze Radio Network. Sexton. What's up, Team Buck? I got to say that we are uh, closing out the show today, and I'm not going to be doing a live show tomorrow, as it turns out. We're going to have a sort of special best of the year show from various radio hosts. I just want to say uh, Merry Christmas to all of you, uh, to you, your families. Uh, Team Buck is the best part of what I do. I have uh, tremendous respect, appreciation, and affection for all of you. Uh, you are the best Christmas present and the only Christmas present that I really want and, and need. I'm excited to be joining you in the new year 2017. We're going to have a lot to get to. So for all of you, a big hug, Merry Christmas, and of course, Shield Time. The Buck Sexton Show. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. 